is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks a lot for joining me for the program this Tuesday lunchtime. Well, a biosecurity sniffer dog has just stopped a significant pest threat from entering the country. It is the brown marmorated stink bug. While it poses no risk to human health, would be absolutely devastating for our agriculture industry. The fact that it can attack over 300 types of fruit, ornamental trees and vegetable crops would be not just economically damaging, but it would also be a very big nuisance for our households around Australia. Yeah, I'll tell you more about this and about the good dog that made the detection uh, before 1.30 today. And I'll also bring you an interesting discussion about the role of livestock production in the future. Ruminants like cattle and sheep, they often get a pretty bad environmental rap. Today we're going to hear if that is all warranted and what would happen if everybody went vegetarian. If you go and say, well, let's reduce the amount of livestock that are out there, you're actually reducing the amount of protein that is out there. So you've got to be very careful with that. People will starve if you do that without replacing it. And yet, where you can actually grow these pulse crops is limited, and so therefore it's not an easy transition to make. Yeah, that'll be up on your radio soon and plenty more on the Country Hour today. But first up, the NT Land Corporation has chosen a preferred developer for the Larimer Agricultural Precinct. It's like a consortium called Larimer Farms Proprietary Limited. It will develop around 5,700 hectares of land around Larimer. So we're talking about 180k sort of to the south of Catherine um, on the Stewart Highway. So Larimer Farms it consists of Jamie Shembury. He's a melon grower originally from New South Wales who for the past few years has been growing melons on leased land in the Douglas Daly. Um, also in that consortium is a South Australian family from the Clare Valley. Uh, I spoke earlier with Paul Burke from the NT Farmers Association about these chosen developers of this Larimer land. Yeah, so Larimer Farm is made up um, of a couple of local fellas from, from here that are farming here in the Territory now, a, a melon farmer and, and someone that's um, doing some broad acre and, and, and then a family from South Australia. So we're bringing some expertise in from outside of the Territory as well, which is really pleasing. What can you tell us about this country around Larimer? What does it, what does it look like now? So, so it's it's pretty well remnant vegetation at the moment. Um, so there will be need to be some development go on on that site. Um, we know that the availability of water there is good. Um, we know that the soils are, are of a good quality. So we think that um, it's a really sound area. There is other development going on in the area. So from an agricultural point of view, it's creating a critical mass in a in a region. So that's something really pleasing to see. And what can you tell us about the plans that Larimer Farms have for this country? So it will be a mixed farming operation. It will include um, some melon production. It will include some broad acre production, but probably will um, also include some other horticultural crops. So um, we do think that that, that will evolve and it will create um, a critical mass um, on that property to be able to to get a good-sized workforce and, and be a really productive part of our industry. What sort of workforce size uh, might we be talking? Um, so if we look at the melon 
um, operation, that's probably going to be in the order of 30 or 40 people. So the other crops um, we'll see as they uh, go through some, some selection processes uh, to see what the amount of, of workforce, but, but it will certainly be in the order of 30 or 40 people. The release of this land hasn't been um, without its own bit of controversy. Um, NT Land Corporation had its 10,000 megalitre water licence for that parcel of land revoked last year. Where are things at now with getting water to irrigate that land? So the proponent will now need to go through an application process for the water. And, you know, I believe that's imminent. Um, I don't know the scale of water they're looking at but they will certainly need to work through that process and secure water to make sure the development can go forward. And do you have an idea of how much land there might be suitable for, for irrigated ag? Um, we've always thought that, you know, it's, it's probably somewhere around 700 to 1,200 hectares of available land there. Um, there may be other areas that are suitable for dry land production as well, but we certainly see um, a, a reasonable sized parcel of land in a very good location, close to a highway, so um, good access as well. Was there much um, competition, people bidding for this land? Um, there was. It's been a, a very long process, um, a very thorough process to get the best candidate, and, and I think we've landed in a really good spot. Um, we've ra- landed in, in, a, in, in a situation that gives us high-value production um, in a melon operation, but also gives us some subsidiary um, broadacre as well. So it is a really exciting development. And what do you hope the development could mean for the town of Larimer? Oh, hopefully um, it, it, it will drive some investment around Larimer and it creates some jobs for the people that are in and around Larimer. So um, it certainly would be welcome news for the pub, I would have thought. Um, an extra 30 or 40, 40 people working in the area will certainly support um, the, the service station and the pub and, and the shop. And just while I got you, Paul, um, the Federal Department of Ag has been looking whether or not to allow Philippines to export dragon fruit to Australia. Um, can you tell our audience um, why this risk assessment has come about and, and, and what it all means? So I guess um, with any country that trades with Australia, um, they, they are, they, there's often requests to bring certain produce through and the federal government does a risk assessment to ensure that we're not damaging or, or, or threatening our industry here and, and the dragon fruit industry is quite um, a small industry at the moment, but it is growing. Um, so we need to protect the growers here in Australia and ensure that, that all of the protocols if people are bringing dragon fruit in um, are in place um, to, to give protection to our growers. How are Northern Territory dragon fruit growers feeling about potentially having a Filipino dragon fruit come into the country? I would imagine they will be disappointed, um, and rightly so. But it's a really difficult place to be when we're exporting fruit. Um, other countries are looking at, at us and wanting to export to us. So we know American apples have come in to, or will be coming into Australia from now. They've been through a process. And, and certainly um, apple growers in that situation were really devastated with, with that news. But um, it's something we've got to work through. Uh, Territory dragon fruit growers have said uh, their profits have really been hit since Vietnamese fruit started coming uh, into Australia a few years ago. Uh, do you know what the, the timing for the Filipino fruit might mean for market? Um, it, that will be very much driven by demand. Um, and at the moment, I think 
we're in a strong position where we have some of the best dragon fruit in the world and we've got to get, just keep promoting that into stores and, and um, hopefully Australian consumers vote with their feet and continue to buy Australian dragon fruit. Uh, this draft report, it's been put out by the department now. Uh, what happens next? So I guess... Uh, the, the the protocols will need to be developed. We probably won't see dragon fruit from Philippines here in Australia um, over the next two to three years um, whilst they're, they're being developed, but it does clear a pathway for Filipino growers to potentially export to Australia in, in the medium term. And Paul Burke is the CEO of the NT Farmers Association. So that uh, draft risk analysis on importing Filipino dragon fruit, it is up on the Federal Department of Ag's website right now. It is open for public submissions until the 22nd of February. So probably just the best way to find that uh, is to Google dragon fruit from the Philippines Department of Agriculture and you can follow your links there to uh, the draft report and um, how you can make a submission. And just earlier, we were talking about the proposed developer of the Larimer Agricultural Precinct. So we're talking about 5,700 hectares of land around the town of Larimer. So a consortium called Larimer Farms has been chosen to take it on. Uh, that's being led by Jamie Shambry. He's originally from New South Wales, uh, but for the last few years, he's been growing watermelons in the Douglas Daly region. Uh, we have been trying to get onto Jamie to hear more about his plans. Uh, haven't had any luck as of yet, but uh, we have got a statement uh, from Jamie Shambry. I'll share a little bit of that with you. It says, uh, we will be producing a range of broadacre crops and a selection of tropical seeds which are best suited to the location. He goes on to say, initially we'll be focusing on growing melons and progressively trialling new crops such as ginger, turmeric, cumin, black sesame, fennel, caraway and hemp and expanding into new varieties of crops which have been trialled previously such as chickpeas, corn and sorghum. So yeah, potentially uh, a lot of different crops on the table there at Larimer, uh, still a fair bit of work to go through before any of that starts to happen. As we heard there from Paul Burke, uh, the corporation will need to apply for a water licence and, of course, any clearing permits needed for that. Uh, that is uh, news out today. It is 20 minutes to one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Hello, my name is Salodi Botongoleoi and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Uh, coming up on your radio soon, we're going to be talking about if the environmental rap that ruminants like cattle and sheep get is warranted. We're going to bring you that discussion up after a bit of Waylon Jennings. A bit of Waylon Jennings there for your radio this Tuesday lunchtime. You're on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on ABC Radio, right across the Territory. Well, the livestock industry is being unfairly targeted for having a detrimental effect on human health and the environment. That's the opinion of Dr Graham Gardner, who is a livestock measurement technologies expert at Murdoch University. He was a keynote speaker at a Meaty Matters conference held in Perth to discuss the role of meat in global society. Uh, Professor Gardner, he says that methane emissions from livestock are not as big as a problem as carbon dioxide that's produced from burning fossil fuels. 
Look, all agriculture generates emissions. So that's one thing to say straight up. Um, methane has, uh, or, or you know, ruminants particularly, have their role to play within it. It's been overstated. So here's a here's a few interesting numbers for you. Back in the day, before the domestication of ruminants, um, there were a hell of a lot of them still roaming the earth. And in fact, they estimate those numbers to have been 0.86 or 86% of what we've currently got. So it's not like the modern production animal industries have suddenly tripled or quadrupled the number of ruminants that were out there generating mass global warming. It hasn't happened like that. We've effectively got the same numbers that have always been there contributing to this this constantly present bubble of gases, methane, that is part of a, a carbon cycle. So it gets generated and then it gets re-sequestered by the grass that those animals are eating and then it gets regenerated. And the crucial thing about this is that it's a short-lived gas. So the, the half-life of methane is about five years, whereas carbon dioxide from fossil fuels is 100 years. So in effect, if you were to compare the two, you're basically emitting methane, which is part of this cycle. It's, um, it's being generated but turning over quickly. And so, in effect, it's this kind of like this bubble that's existed in the atmosphere um, for as long as we've been around. Whereas the, the digging up of fossil fuels and the, and the constant emissions from that, it's contributing to a bubble that is continuously growing. Let's go beyond methane because some people still feel as though livestock farming is detrimental to the environment beyond just the gases that are coming out in the burps. What are your thoughts on, on those side of things, the damage to the land and the clearing of land, etc.? That's a really good point. So there are several things to consider that go well beyond just the gases that are emitted. Um, you may have heard of the, um, the effectively ruminants and livestock competing for land that you could otherwise grow crops on. Whereas in actual fact, if you actually look at it worldwide, 75% of, um, of agricultural production occurs on constant grassland, so lands that you otherwise could not grow crops on. It's non-arable. So for a start, you can't just simply turn around and, and suddenly grow crops everywhere where you've got ruminants. I don't know, I'll give you, a, the, you know, the most extreme example. There's cattle in the Pilbara. You're not going to go up into the Pilbara and grow the equivalent amount of protein through a, um, through a legume-type crop. So that's, uh, that's one of the key issues. Another key constraint here, of course, is that to replace that protein, you've got to go to the, the grains, the pulses, and they're quite restricted in where you can actually grow those. And this is one of the key things. If you go and say, well, let's reduce the amount of livestock that are out there, you're actually reducing the amount of protein that is out there. So you've got to be very careful with that. People will starve if you do that without replacing it. And yet, where you can actually grow these pulse crops is limited, and so therefore it's not an easy transition to make. So when you're talking about growing pulses, that's replacing the protein that you would get from the meat if you chose not to eat meat for health reasons. That's exactly right. You're saying you're going to have to get it from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's exactly right. And there's, a, there's another thing to consider. So from these crops, um, for I think it's estimated that about one kilogram of grain generates an additional four kilograms of inedible material. Now, guess what you do with that? You feed it to ruminants, and they are spectacular at taking that and turning it into high-quality protein, which you otherwise would not have. And if you weren't doing that, you're actually creating waste that then would need to be dealt with itself. So that, of course, would have an environmental impact. 
So there's swings and roundabouts here. It's not, a, it's not as simple as just removing ruminants from the system. won't fix it. So another reason why some of the younger generation are tending to turn away from livestock and eating meat is for those health reasons. Either they keep hearing that it's bad for their cholesterol or their fat. They may also have other reasons. They don't like the thought of having livestock in paddocks or in trucks or on ships or in abattoirs. So that's a, that's a slightly different matter. If it's health-wise, though... Yeah, are there some myths associated with that? Are, are, is meat, red meat, uh, detrimental to our health? Well, the, at this conference, um, there was an entire section on health. Um, it, it started with a bloke by the name of Neil Mann. He went through just the simple evolution of the, the human race, which historically has consumed um, animal-based proteins as part of their diet. I think about 65%. Um, have come from animal-based proteins, and 35% of their diet comes from non-animal sourced foods. So that's what we've evolved with over you know the last three and a half million years. So our teeth, our gut, our entire metabolism is structured around dealing with that and coping with it, and and thriving upon that type of intake. So that's the uh, that, that's where we've come from. The other um, the other key thing that was explored. So a, a lady by the name of Alice Stanton. She spoke. She's quite a good nutritionist, um, and she spoke about populations where they consume less than thirty percent of their caloric intake or, or what they eat from animal based proteins. Now those populations where that happens, they end up with deficiencies. So this is things like iron and zinc, um, folate, vitamin A, vitamin B12, calcium. So all of those things, they're highly available through animal proteins and those populations not consuming them end up deficient. And the second you're deficient, you either have to take supplements or try and source those animal-based proteins to replace them. Now, if you actually go and compare, and this, this is really interesting actually, if you go to, go to the alternative foodstuffs and look at the amount you would otherwise have to eat from grains, so those, um, those pulses that I was talking about, you have to eat about five times as much of those to extract the same amount of those minerals I just mentioned compared to a single dose of, um, of protein. So it's basically a one to five ratio. So imagine having to eat five times as much just to extract those minerals. And I suppose not everyone in the world has the ability the, or the finances to be able to actually access everything they need if you're not getting it from meat. And this is another crucial thing. You know, it's okay for the, 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 the sort of the kids in the western suburbs to say, well, I'm going to go and be a vegan and... Uh, uh, and I'll, uh, I'll get good nutritional advice and I'll go and consume supplements and that'll make sure I don't become deficient, maybe even get an injection of iron to stay ahead of it, particularly for women. This is the western suburbs of Perth, of Perth by the way, yeah, just yeah. in case you're listening to this in, <laughs> in, in the, the eastern East states. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, you're, uh, the, the bulk of the world's population, they have access to neither that information nor those mineral supplements. If you were to ex- remove animal proteins from it, you would have a, a global health issue on your hands. Just chatting to Dr. Graham Gardner, who's a livestock measurement technologies expert at Murdoch Uni. I suppose livestock can be very, very important for some family businesses, but in some countries, they're even more important than that, aren't they? Yeah, this is crucial. So in Africa, 
the um, the ruminant population of the world, about 20% of it is based there. And they, for, um, for many of those populations, they represent like a bank. So, so their wealth is stored in the animals that they own and, of course, prestige is tied up around that. Um, so you've got both that nutritional overlay, the, um, the readily available minerals and amino acids from what they're eating, but also you've got the economic and societal overlay. And that's crucial. That's not going to be an easy thing to fix in Africa. Um, I think they, they do need help. So, you know, the, that 20% of the ruminant population tend to be poorly productive and high methane emitters. So um, that's certainly, in terms of global attention, that's an area that, um, that could do with a bit of help. The other thing to look at is the, the, the worldwide availability of energy and protein. Now, as a, just a, a total body of food that is out there, um, the estimates are that we still have plenty of energy available for the existing population, albeit I, I will concede it's not equitably distributed and that needs to be fixed, but the, uh, the energy is there. Protein, alternatively, is more on a nice edge. So at the moment, it looks like we've just got enough protein for meeting the, the human population's requirements across the world. If we were to suddenly remove animal-based proteins from that, you've got a huge issue on your hands. So for a start, we can't grow enough of these um, pulse grains to, to replace that protein. The humans would have to eat five times as much of them and you would then be dealing with having to redistribute those um, into, into areas of the world where it's hard to get them to. Whereas, you know, your ruminants, they can be owned by, um, by farmers in third world countries. They can eat and, and sustain themselves on, on very poor um, feedstuffs um, that are largely inedible to humans. And, um, and you know, they, they effectively are a key part of feeding those populations of the world. So just going back to where we started with the methane emission side of things, if you were advising politicians in Australia and throughout the world as to what to do to try to help the environment to decrease our methane emissions, given everything you've just mentioned there, what would your advice be? So in Australia, um, you know, we've got the, the technologies to act upon the emissions on several fronts. So there was actually a, a couple of good presentations by, uh, by Phil Verco and Manny Curnow, and they, they were talking about the, the animal itself and the ability to feed it substances like seaweeds. Mm -hmm. The asparagopsis would, argument. Yeah, the yep. asparagopsis story that would reduce the amount of carbon coming out, the amount of methane, um, but also to select for animals that emit less. So, uh, so that's the emission part of the story. Now, the other... The other part of the story that's often overlooked, so you've got to look at the amount of carbon produced per product generated. Now, if we were to talk about the grams of protein produced per carbon emitted, you can actually significantly shift that balance as well by selecting for fast-growing lean animals, so long as you don't wreck their eating quality. 
So in Australia, we can actually, we, we've got the, the measurement technologies available to us now that can measure and quantify that in excellent detail, in fact, far better than anywhere in the world. It's an absolute strength of our um, of our livestock industries, so uh, so this is a in my opinion this is a key thing that we should get ahead of if we can properly benchmark the amount of protein that we are generating from these animals, trade on that value, and maintain its eating quality, then the market can respond, and we've got this is the crucial one, documented evidence to prove to governments and international auditing bodies that our, our emissions claims per kilogram of protein are accurate. If that catches on worldwide, we could be at the forefront of all this. So it's been a fascinating discussion with you, and I'd, I'd love to keep going, but we have run out of time. Dr. Graham Gardner, thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks very much, Richard. That is Dr. Graham Gardner. He's a professor in biochemistry, nutrition and toxicology in the College of Environmental and Life Sciences at Murdoch University. And he was speaking there with Richard Hudson. It is two minutes to one here on the country. Now, just quickly, uh, New South Wales authorities, they found another case of varroa mite in a beehive close to Newcastle. So this makes it the 107th case confirmed and it will result in more beehives being destroyed. Now, as this varroa mite outbreak continues, uh, the question being asked is, at what point do authorities make the call to switch from eradication to learning to live with this pest? Dr John Carr, he's a Queensland vet and author of a book on managing bee health. Uh, He's also travelled the world looking at how other countries have managed the varroa mite. He thinks Australia should continue with its current eradication plan. Well, we're the only continent left which is varroa-free we then have this uh, infestation around the Newcastle-Sydney area. And it's mainly located on the Newcastle area. And certainly I agree we have deliberately um, lost all the commercial hives within the red zones, uh, if you look on the, on the DAF um, link. And we have to in the sense that we've basically got to look after the rest of Australia's bees. I mean, at the moment, the outbreak is still relatively confined in a very small area. But it is still disturbing, like you said, yes, like you said, that we've had one new case yesterday. Um, and the other thing that is disturbing is the potential escapees, because we have now eliminated all of the hives within the exclusion zones. But they're the hives that we control, as in the, the hives that we farm. But bees are a bit like cats. They will live with you if they want to. And they will swarm, and they will more than happy to live in a tree. And so the next phase of the eradication program is going to be a lot more intense and a lot more difficult because we've got to find these bees that are living in trees. And Dr John Carr, he's a Queensland vet and author of a book on bee management. We're approaching the one o'clock news here on the Country Hour. Up in five minutes, we'll be speaking with the Weather Bureau. If you've got any questions for the Bureau, especially about this potential for a monsoon later this week, Send your questions in via the text on 0487 991057. Get them in now. I'll speak to you in a few minutes. Hi, my name is Trent McDonald and I'm from Arena Station. Hi, my name's Wim. I am Wim Tutu and I'm from Kicks in the Park. Hi. My name is Lynn and we live out of town. We are listening to the Country Hour. 
My name is Dan Fitzgerald, and yes, this is the Country Hour. You might be listening via the radio on ABC Radio Darwin, Channel 25, if you're on your telly, and we're also available on the podcast. You can always catch up on every single one of our programs. Just download it via your ABC Listen app or your podcast app on your phone. Really easy to get a hold of. Just type in Northern Territory Country Hour and you can find all of our stories there. Uh, Still to come today, we are going to be awarding a big gold biosecurity sticker to a dog called Petal who has just found a significant pest threat and stopped it from entering the country. While it poses no risk to human health, would be absolutely devastating for our agriculture industry. The fact that it can attack over 300 types of fruit, ornamental trees and vegetable crops would be not just economically damaging, but it would also be a very big nuisance for our households around Australia. Yeah, I'll tell you more about the finding of this stink bug before 1.30. And we'll also go check out a trial crop of agave, uh, which could be used pretty soon to make some agave spirits. It's on the Country Hour, still coming up soon. Uh, but let's head to the Weather Bureau where we've got Billy Lynch on deck today. G'day, Billy. How you doing? G'day, Dan. Doing well, thanks. That's the way. Um, let's take a look at some uh, rainfall figures from overnight. Where were, the, where were the best falls? Yeah, look, the best falls were generally across the um, southern half of the top end and, and a bit towards the base of the top end there where we saw around 20 to 40 millimetres. Um, so Adelaide River came in with 38 millimetres, Haywood Creek 33, Bamban Springs 31, um, Douglas River Research Farms 30, uh, Centre Island on the Gulf Coast did pick up 59 millimetres, um, and then down through southern parts of the NT, uh, falls were generally less than, than 10 millimetres, but um, yeah, Alice Springs Airport picked up 8 millimetres, um, which is not too bad. And then since 9am, Dan, um, the radar's been pretty active over the eastern Arnhem district. Uh, we've seen Gove Airport pick up 26 millimetres already, and Naywili on the Tiwi Islands, 59 millimetres. Yeah, nice. Um, that's some good bit of rain around. Um, now, Billy, the question um, everyone wants to know about is uh, this monsoonal burst uh, that is on track for later in the week. Is that uh, still on its way? Yeah, look, still on track, Dan. Um, at the moment on the satellite, we're seeing a sort of cluster of thunderstorms about halfway between the Tiwi Islands and East Timor. Um, so in that cluster is where we think you know, a weak low pressure system may form during the next day or two. Um, just to the north of there, from about Sulawesi across to Ambon, we're seeing the monsoon at the moment. And so we're expecting that whole system to gradually drift southwards during the next few days, bringing the monsoon onto the top end. Um, so we're thinking from Thursday, the monsoon coming down onto the north coast and then shifting southwards um, during Friday and Saturday. Okay. And how much rain might it bring? Well, for the top end, I guess daily totals we'd be looking at anywhere from 50 millimetres up to 150 millimetres um, with those 150 millimetres being a bit more isolated around the coast but um, yeah, in general we're expecting you know the showers and the thunderstorms to become more scattered um, we'll get those rainy areas that um, you tend to see as well with the monsoon um, 
But even before the monsoon comes, we are expecting showers and thunderstorms to increase across the top end. So I did mention um, we were looking at the eastern Arnhem district at the moment. Um, so that activity is pushing westwards across and expected to reach you know, the western top end later this evening and overnight. Um, and then tomorrow, just as that monsoon trough is approaching, we're expecting the northeast Arnhem district to be the focus again. So the 50 to 150 millimetres around the northeast Arnhem district um, tomorrow and, and, and then extending towards the, the Gulf Coast on the Thursday and then again as that monsoon trough is approaching the north coast and then especially the, the western top end from Friday yep. is where the heavier falls will um, be more concentrated. Okay, so the wet season really starting to fire up um, and the Bureau has also released an initial flood watch for inland western NT catchments. So we're talking the Tanami Desert, Central Desert um, and some of the East Kimberley regions. So that's uh, from this monsoon sort of heading into Central Australia, is it? Yeah, so it's kind of not directly associated with the monsoon, um, but it is associated with just the tropical moisture spreading southwards ahead of a trough, which is pretty slow moving over the southwest corner of the Territory. So as the tropical moisture increases during the next few days, expecting more showers and thunderstorms to develop and um, those locations that you mentioned. So in terms of town locations, I guess we're, we're thinking larger Manu, Yuandamu, Papunya, that kind of area. Um, could get some scattered heavy rainfall. Um, so we've got that initial flood watch out. Um, yeah, we're looking at uh, anywhere from sort of 40 to 70 millimetres. But there might even be embedded within that the um, isolated heavier fall of around 100 to even 150 millimetres with this tropical moisture, particularly from Thursday and Friday. Yeah, OK. Um, and that, that includes Alice Springs. Could get some rain as well? Yeah, definitely. So Alice Springs isn't included within the, the flood watch, but um, the general trend is going to be consistent right across the southern half of the NT there. So um, Alice Springs also the, the Thursday and the Friday looking like the potential for some heavy falls where we could see, you know, at least 25 millimetres and maybe more. Yeah, OK. And it looks like it might cool things down in the Alice at the top of 24 on Friday. That, that seems nice. Yeah, most definitely. So this is, you know, the good news factor with the monsoon and the tropical moisture increasing is um, it is going to bring the cloud cover and we're likely to see some below average temperatures, which um, will probably persist um, through to Christmas Day. Yeah, beautiful. Alrighty. Um, yeah, so it looks like there's a, a few storms to keep an eye on this Arvo. Uh, anything else we need to know, Billy? Uh, look, I guess the other thing just for this Arvo is there is also the risk of some severe thunderstorm warnings coming out, um, particularly across the southern half of the NT, and um, that does include Alice Springs again. So keep up to date with the usual channels that you receive your warnings from. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for that, Billy. Thanks, Dan. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. And, yeah, you can keep up to date on uh, that weather and severe storms via the ABC or the, uh, the Bureau's website. It is 12 minutes past one here on the Country Hour. G'day, folks. Troy Casadaly here. Um, every time I get to the Territory, it's always a, an honour and a privilege. I get up here and I flip lures at Barramundi and Saratoga and whatever else will chase my line. Um, it's a great place to be. You're very lucky to live up here and you're tuned into the Country Hour. Well, how about this? For the second time in Australia's history, a devastating pest has been stopped 
from wreaking havoc on the nation's ag sector by some very hard-working recruits. The biosecurity detector dog Petal has sniffed out a live brown marmoretted stink bug in a passenger's duffel bag at the Brisbane International Airport. So this passenger had flown in from Taiwan, unwittingly had uh, this stink bug in their luggage. And, yeah, it's a, it's a really dangerous pest for Australia ag. It, it can feed on more than 300 types of plants and trees, and it's known for hitchhiking in cargo and travellers' luggage. Colleen Iser from the Department of Agri- Agriculture, she says the brown marmoretted stink bug is a national priority plant pest and could be devastating to the ag sector. It is vitally important that we stop brown marmoretted stink bug from entering Australia. It's an exotic pest that, while it poses no risk to human health, would be absolutely devastating for our agriculture industry. So the fact that it can attack over 300 types of fruit, ornamental trees and vegetable crops would be not just economically damaging, but it would also be a very big nuisance for our households around Australia. And how much of an issue has this pest caused in other countries? Look, uh, brown marmorated stink bug is a significant pest. Um, At the moment for Australia, it's ranked nine on Australia's national priority plant pest list. Um, And it's currently within several countries overseas, um, including Eastern Asia, as well as entered into Europe and North America. So it is a significant pest that we don't want to enter here into Australia. So did this person realise that they had this pest on them or in their luggage? Unfortunately not. That's the painful thing about brown marmorated stink bug. It is a hitchhiker pest, so it will hide in the nooks and crannies of passengers' bags or in cargo, and we can't find it unless we have our fantastic detector dogs or officers looking for it on the front line. So how do you train a detector dog to find these kinds of pests? Yeah, so very similar to our other target items, we will introduce the dog and do what we call an imprinting process to the to the beetle. Um, and so while the dog is learning that when I smell this, I get a reward, we do multiple repetitions and really encourage that dog to understand that when I sniff this bug, I'm going to get a reward. So it takes a lot of repetition, but they actually pick it up fairly quickly because stink bugs release a very strong, distinct odour. And how many dogs are actually trained in Australia to detect brown marmorated stink bug? So out of our current um, operational detector dogs, there are 37 dogs trained to detect brown marmorated stink bug um, and with the look to make sure all of our detector dogs will be trained on it across the years. If someone has got a bug of some description that they're not sure of, what should they do? Can they, can you, is there an easy way to identify this bug? So BMSB looks very similar to our native stink bugs. It's brown in a shield-shaped type body and is ranging between 12 millimetres to 17 millimetres long. It does have some distinctive black and white banding along its bodies as well, but I would definitely recommend that if you jump onto our website, biosecurity.gov.au, we actually have photos of what the bug looks like. And if you do find what looks to be a brown marmorated stink bug, we recommend that you see it, secure it and report it to 1800 798 636. If somebody actually is aware that they've got one of these hitchhiking pests in their luggage, are there significant fines for people who don't declare them? Definitely. If you're actually bringing it in on purpose with an intent to bring it into the country and you don't declare it, there are significant fines that you'll face upon entering into Australia if you're detected with that. If somebody is concerned that they have picked up a hitchhiking pest, what are some common locations where they are found in people's luggage? 
Okay, so the best locations to look for would actually be any um, dark corners within your luggage or clothing items, um, especially if you've been hanging your clothes out on the line outside while you've been travelling. Uh, so make sure that your clothes are nice and secured and if you do suspect that you have the potential to have stink bugs within your bag, let an officer know when you enter the country and we'll get it for you. Colleen Iser, she's from the Department of Agriculture and a National Detector Dog Lead, speaking there with Jane McNaughton. Yeah, and a big shout-out to Petal, the biosecurity detector dog, who found that stink bug at the Brisbane International Airport. It is 18 minutes past one here on the Country Hour with me, Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, time now for a tune. This is one by my Troy Cassadaly. Well, listen now to the wind, babe. Bow River there by Troy Cassadaly here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. And he'll bring up the 200 with a boundary. ABC Sports Summer of Cricket. The fingers gone up. Monday, join ABC Sports coverage of the second test between Australia and South Africa. This is the test match you won't want to miss. Live from the MCG in Melbourne. Glorious from Lubbershane. Australia v South Africa. On ABC Radio, ABC Sport Digital and live on the ABC Listen app. Yeah, Dan Fitzgerald is my name and, yeah, you're on the Country Hour on ABC Radio right across the Territory. It is 23 minutes past one. Now, imagine being able to pick up a piece of fruit at the supermarket, pull out your phone and scan a QR code on the fruit and being able to see where it was grown, when it was harvested and other details about the farmer. A researcher with the Department of Prime Industry in New South Wales, he says he expects this type of technology to become widespread in just the next two to three years. Dr S.P. Singh has been looking into traceability in the melon industry and he says there's a range of uses for this sort of technology. Traceability is becoming more important considering its role in uh, preventing biosecurity and food safety outbreaks as well as in terms of consumer engagement. So traceability is your ability to trace and track product throughout the supply chain. It really helps the growers in minimize the impact of any biosecurity or food safety issues that can arise. And another aspect that traceability brings is you can track the product in the supply chain and then you can seek feedback from the consumer. In, in the modern world, consumer is interested to know the uh, history of the fruit, the journey of the fruit, how it was grown and what sort of uh, food safety standards or ethical production standards were employed during production. So traceability and especially the labeling with a QR code on the fruit, it allows the grower to directly connect with the consumer and provide all that information and, and that actually builds the confidence and trust in the supply of the product and it gives consumer that, that confidence in the product, but also it allows the transparency across the supply chain. And so that's what you're looking into, a, a QR code, a sticker on, on a watermelon or another product, being able to scan that and, and see all of these details about where fruit comes from, when it was harvested, that kind of thing? We are exploring different options of labeling on fruit. Uh, in case of watermelon, as you know, fruit is cut into quarters or halves at retail. So the challenge in watermelon is how can we transfer the data 
from one whole fruit to cut pieces at retail. So we conducted trials in partnership with uh, Melons Australia, SMA and Woolworths where we demonstrated to the industry that you can successfully transfer all the data from one cut melon into pieces where consumer will get more information about the cut date and time on the label and they can also scan that label and go back and know about from where the fruit was coming and when it was cut and what was the time when it was cut. So it, it really gives a lot of information to consumer about the freshness as well as the practices along the supply chain. How common is this kind of traceability in Australia at the moment? It's in early days, uh, but it's becoming very popular these days. Uh, I think melon industry is one of the few industries which has taken lead in adopting digital traceability. And what we are doing through our trials is we are piloting the technology, showing the benefits to the growers, uh, to the others involved in the supply chain, as well as to the supermarkets. So these pilots are really helpful to demonstrate these benefits across the supply chain. So I'm expecting that in, in the coming two or three years, you will see the widespread use of this technology in the supply chain. How have growers that you've spoken to responded about this? What, what are they saying? Growers have been very enthusiastic about this new technology and so far we have seen very positive response of growers. They're really keen to trial the new technologies and, and, and adopt them in the near future because the melon industry is looking at uh, expanding their export program. So in the export market, they want to uh, value and they want to really uh, make the best use of the provenance of Australian products. So Australian products are treated as uh, clean, green and safe in the market. They are considered tastier and nutritious. So growers really want to uh, make the best use of that provenance factor. So it's, it's really interesting to see that how industry has positively responded with enthusiasm to, to traceability. What would you say to growers that are more cautious about this and maybe see it as, as too much surveillance almost on their practices? Some aspects of traceability, uh, though they bring um, transparency in the supply chain, but you have to be very cautious about the data transfer. So, so that though we are calling it seamless transfer of data, but it should be permission-based. So those growers, those who would have concern, those who don't want to share their complete information, they would have a choice of choosing what they would like to transfer across the supply chain. So yes, we haven't come across any serious concerns about the data transfer, uh, but those who would have any such concerns, the technology allows you to filter that information uh, that you can pass on to the consumer. Dr. S.P. Singh, he's from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry and he was speaking there with Max Rowley. And that is just about it for the Country Hour for this Tuesday. If you missed any of our stories today, including our top story about the proposed developer for the Larimer Agricultural Precinct, uh, you can listen back to that via the podcast. It'll be up online and in your podcast app later this afternoon. That's it from me, this Arvo. Take it easy.